Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're excited to be here with you this morning. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Again, we're going to be talking about the economy and what is happening, this time from the perspective of the Credit Managers Index, which is always presented each month by Dr. Chris Keel, who comes just from Armada Corporate Intelligence and the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International. Lou, of course, we're looking forward to a bright and rosy report. I'm not sure that's what we'll get. No, I'm not. I've already heard well, two reports this week. So, you know, Chris, welcome aboard. Jump in and uh, let's uh, see where we really are from your humorous perspective. Well, I, I just want to alert you once more that when you're looking for, for bright and sunny, an economist should not be the first thing to come to mind. Um <laughs> We, we are, after all, the dismal science and proud of it. So, yeah, it, it's been a, a fairly rugged few weeks, um, but that was something that we had been predicting, I think, really all year. I mean, this was considered to be a year of, of two halves. The first half was likely to be the peak, and then the second half was going to start to show signs of weakness. And you're starting to see that. Some of it is, is sort of self-induced. Um, we have the latest round of China-U.S. confrontation to deal with. But a lot of it really transcends the politics and the tariff. It's just you're beginning to see, you know, a business cycle that has been around for a long time is starting to show signs of age. Uh, you're beginning to see a little bit more nervousness within the consumer sector and if you look at the credit managers index just by itself we get early warning data from some of the readings that we get as you are probably remembering we separated into two categories we have the favorables things that make credit managers happy things like dollar collections getting paid um, applications for new credit sales good stuff and then we have the negatives which include things like disputes and accounts out for collection and bankruptcies. In that category that is non-favorable, there are two that are real early signs of trouble. One of them is slow pays. Um, companies are not yet in trouble, but they're starting to ask for more time or they're slowing down and when they pay, those numbers are getting worse. Uh, we're also seeing more disputes and this is something where companies are arguing with the companies that they have asked credit from so the next stage is you get more collection activity and then ultimately you get more bankruptcy activity neither of those have gotten really bad but we're we're now kind of sending a heads up um, companies are beginning to feel the stretch um, more in certain sectors than others so there are still some strong sectors, but in the manufacturing end of things, aerospace is hurting, ag equipment is hurting, automotive is kind of holding its own, uh, construction is okay, but there really is no booming manufacturing sector. Um, and you've got 
steady state for some, but not nothing that's sort of like, wow, look at how fast they're growing. So, so Chris, let me ask you, why is it that uh, mainstream news media, whether network or cable, uh, is telling the story, uh, you know, the lemonade story, you know, they drink in the lemonade, that the economy is well, great, manufacturing is great. It's not. Well, I think the challenge has always been what do you use for data and what are you looking at? And one of the things the media is fairly bad at is distinguishing between leading indicators, lagging indicators, concurrent indicators. I mean, it gets sort of esoteric, and so they don't really pass that on to the casual consumer because they're – kind of looking at, at their readership or their viewership saying, oh, God, as soon as we start using these terms, these people are all going to go switch to entertainment today and see what Khloe Kardashian's up to. You know, so they, <laughs> they don't go into the detail. Um, what we've been seeing in the way of good news has mostly been lagging indicators and, and things that are maybe concurrent. We look at unemployment. We look at, at GDP growth. Those are useful, but they're not the ones that signal the future. The future gets signaled in things like the purchasing managers index and the credit managers index and capacity utilization and you know capital expenditure stuff that most people don't have an instinctual knowledge of. But from an economist perspective, going, okay, when the PMI is just hovering above 50, when you look at global purchasing managers index and you see that every single country but three have gone into contraction. I mean, the only countries that are not in contraction now are the Netherlands, Canada, and I think New Zealand, and they're at like 50 point something. Yeah, All powerful countries. Spend, yeah, you bet. I mean, we just <laughs> sell a whole lot to New Zealand. Um, you know. <laughs> right. You know, yes, we depend on them for kiwi fruit, but I mean, seriously, most people can't stand that stuff. Um, you know, so it's those are the sorts of things that worry the economists. And at some point, it'll catch up, and the media will say, "Oh my God, what happened?" Well, you know, it's been happening for months. It's just that you just now started to notice. So. Well, let me ask you this: the uh, the uh, Federal Reserve uh, now taking a more aggressive position by lowering the uh, uh, the rate to a quarter point, uh, and mm-hmm. very likely to lower it again before the end of the year. Uh, or is it is not enough business to take advantage of uh, the quarter yeah, I mean, the Fed's reaction is is sort of anticipatory. Um, a couple of things that we have to take into consideration. One is simply that lowering the rate a quarter point when it's only 2.5 to begin with isn't really going to have that much of an impact, and it hadn't. I mean, it's, it's a small gesture, even lowering it another quarter point by the end of the year, it's already low. So lowering right. it a little more isn't going to help. 
the other issue is is what was motivating the Fed. There's not necessarily something wrong with the U.S. economy. Inflation is still low. Unemployment is still low. They're reacting to the global economy and saying, you know, as powerful as we are as a domestic economy, a good 15 to 20 percent of our GDP is export-related. And if the rest of the world isn't doing well, neither are we. So it's kind of anticipating that the rest of the world is going to be teetering close to recession, and we have to be prepared for that. And we've already seen it. We've already seen a decline in what we sell overseas. And it hasn't been helped by the arguments we've been having with the Chinese, but it's a, a circumstance that the Fed is is trying to, I think, erect some barriers so that we don't actually slip into a downturn. But their power at this point is kind of limited. Um, if we really had to stimulate the economy, it's going to have to come from the fiscal side. And they're just, you know, there's not even a whole lot Congress can do there either. I mean, they already run a huge debt deficit. They can't really add more to it without creating all kinds of other problems. Well, you know my philosophy. I I say that uh, I said we're now at twenty three trillion. It's never going to be paid. So why don't we just uh, pull down our pants and let it be known, and wipe the the uh, the blackboard clean, and we don't owe anything. We're not paying it back. Well, you know, you, you're you're right up there with this new theory of of economics that has been making the rounds that says deficits and deficits, debts, math. We don't care. We can borrow forever. You know, it's like it's it's kind of the governmental version of I can't be broke. I still have checks. There um, you go. That's so, my ex-wife. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just it's just we spend until we go into oblivion and. Frankly, a country like the U.S. can get away with that for a long time because we are the world's reserve currency, et cetera. The real problem is, in economic terms, opportunity costs. We are now spending between 300 and 400 billion a year of federal money just to service the debt that we already have. So right off the bat, before anything is paid, um, anything is allocated, we're paying out $400 billion. And then you hear people say, wow, if only we had $300 billion to invest in infrastructure. We had it, but we're spending it, giving it to people who bought our bonds because we can't live within our means. And God bless them. Oh, (laughs) yes. And, you know, so we, we have a... A culture of debt. I mean, it's the government is indebted, consumers are indebted, um, the debt level for consumers is back to record levels. Um, so it's almost a bit of the pot calling the kettle black when the consumer says, why don't you behave responsibly, government? And the government says, like you do. <laughs> so we're kind of like, okay, never mind. Um, but is, isn't debt really running our economy? Well, yeah. I mean, it has, and it's supposed to. I mean, one of the things that debt was created for was to allow people to do things that you can't do as kind of a pay-as-you-go. I mean, debt is separated into good and bad debt. If you go into debt to buy a house, if you go into debt to start a business, if you go into debt to even buy a car, 
that makes sense. That's something that is going to add value uh, to your life and to your savings. If you go into debt to go to Vegas and spend all your money, or you go into debt to go to Disney World and you know spend twelve thousand dollars to be on one of the rides, that's not particularly you know that's not appropriate debt. When the government spends money on infrastructure and that you know that makes sense if it spends money on something that is not much more than income transfer or is some kind of ephemeral program that doesn't really do anybody any good that's bad debt and there's a lot of government spending that still falls into that latter category Okay, uh, well, I think we just solved the problem of the United States and half of the free world. So we have exactly. we have, a, <laughs> we, uh, we I've have your had the attitude that yeah, we, I've always had the attitude that we need to do the Grand Fenwick strategy. We declare war on Canada, and then we lose, <laughs> and then we make the right. Canadians rebuild us. You know, I mean that's, that's just <laughs> there actually was a war. For one day between the Canadians yeah. and the U.S., are you are you familiar with it? I am, and, and and we end up getting Detroit out of that, and I really think we ought to give it back. Um, but right, that's, just, that's right, uh, that's right. <laughs> there was that one day war, and uh, not many people know about it. But uh, don't say it; it's, it's impossible because we've already done that. Yeah, I know. I just, so, I just think we ought to call it West Windsor and, and be done with it. So, you know. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's uh, let's get into uh, your report and uh, uh, see what's going on by the numbers. Yeah, I mean we're we're still in positive territory. So, and the same thing with the PMI, which you talked about. You know, we're not get in a crisis mode. It's just that both of the indices are lower than they have been. Um, we're seeing a, a little bit of a recovery, actually, in some of the unfavorable numbers, um, but the favorables have fell to levels that they've not seen really for several months, if not longer. Um, we're not really in the 60s as consistently as we were, but it, it's all kind of relative. I mean, if we were coming out of the 40s, we'd be like, wow, these numbers are great. But we were in the 60s a few months ago, and it's like, what happened? How come we're only at 55 or 54? Well, you know, it's not as good as it was. It's not at the point where people are in crisis mode, but it's it's concerning. There's no other reason, what I mentioned earlier, is that the worst numbers are the early warning numbers. Right, right, right. Um, I, I like looking at, for example, the uh, tooling, uh, machine tool uh, mm-hmm. monthly report. The only problem with their report, it always comes out two months late. Uh, right, so right. Th- the benefit of uh, the fact that it's a um, um, precursor to what's coming, it, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. leader uh, six months down the road, you only get really four months of it because the report comes out two months later. But I, I have right. found their report to be extremely accurate because if you if you don't if you're not working on tooling today, 
you're not there's not there's going to be less machining and fabricated parts out the door four months from now and uh, it's uh, quite quite an accurate uh, study yeah it is and there's others that are sort of similar one of the ones that I also work on is the forming and fabricating survey that the fabricators and manufacturers do and it's a quarterly the FFJSCR and it looks at job shops and it's one of the few indices that looks at the small to mid-sized manufacturer and the latest data was pretty consistent with this notion that things have been good they're getting a little bit weaker um, we're looking at a little bit lower capacity um, expansion the capacity utilization is kind of in the mid 70s as far as that is concerned a little bit less than the national level but most of the reporting was you know consistent we're still hiring we're still planning on doing expansion we're still buying we're just not buying as much and we're delaying right. some of our plans and i think that that's that's become the watchword people are just getting cautious mm -hmm. for the sake of our listenership could you give us the name and uh, location where that report is so that uh, others can yeah, yeah. share the information Yep, it comes out of the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association um, out of the Chicago area, and I'm their economist and have been. That's kind of how you and I met years ago. Right. And right. Um, the FFJSCR, Forming and Fabricating Job Shop Consumption Reports, something like that, worst acronym ever. Um, I mean, really. <laughs> You, you mean, didn't really think really I was going to be able to write that out. <laughs> you know, I kept thinking, why couldn't we outsource that naming to the Defense Department? I mean, they're good at that. You know, I mean, they've got all kinds of, you know, but instead we get the fifth is skur, you know, which is anyway. Um, it, it's a just, just ask for the unpronounceable <laughs> survey or go to the okay. website, which is so, fmanet.org. Okay, great. That's great. Thank you. Uh, so, mo mo moving along, uh, the uh, manufacturing sector uh, in, in regards to uh, credit and so on, uh, where, where's that going? The industry's in a bit bit of trouble and probably will get yeah, worse. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of sector by sector. Um, aerospace, yeah. we know has been affected by the 737 MAX mess, and, right. and we have seen that ripple through the whole industry. The ag sector has been down because it was a ma massively horrible spring, and a lot of farmers are going to be struggling to get through the year. The energy sector, on the other hand, is still booming. Um, you're still seeing an awful lot of development in the Dakotas, Wyoming, Texas, so that's doing fine. Automotive, which was expected to decline, really hasn't. It's kind of held its own, and the consumer is still interested in buying cars, and with oil and gas prices staying low, the favorite vehicle is still the large truck, van, SUV. Um, you have seen a pretty radical expansion in healthcare manufacturing. Um, most of the manufacturing trends are about as they have been for the last couple of years. Serious shortage of people with the proper skills, which has really accelerated the uh, 
robotics craze. I mean, companies have just simply said, I can't find people anyway. I am just going to bite the bullet and automate and, and go robotic, which makes a good deal of sense. The one cautionary note is that manufacturers have for years been able to adjust to their business by hiring and firing. When they have lots of stuff to do, they hire people. When business falls off, they fire them. If you invest in robots, you can't get rid of them. Um, you've made the investment good years or bad. And so now if they run into a deteriorating business cycle, they're still stuck with those costs. You know, they, they're going to have to pay for those robots anyway. So that may be something that comes back to bite some manufacturers down the road. However, we, are, we have a shrinking workforce the, uh, the gray, the gray hairs are retiring or dying. Uh, the young people, uh, they don't want to go into the same kind of industries. There's still a certain amount of negativity in the manufacturing. You know, the dark, dirty, dangerous uh, group of people. Um, there's uh, a lot of interesting things that I'm running across. I've got a uh, uh, a godson who's uh, 19 years old and I'm very close to him and I and I know his friends and uh, we hang out and uh, th- these kids they you know they're not looking to move out of the house uh, if they don't go to college uh, they go into the navy uh, so we're getting we're getting less and less people in the workforce so that was the same thing that happened in J- Japan during this uh, after the second world war they lost right. a whole generation of men so they came up with the robotics industry, and they're number one in the world. And well, we're what going... the solution is, is we, we simply need to move the machines and the robots into the people's basements. You know, if mom would just let them do the assembly work in the, in the den, then that would yeah. be fine. You know, then they, they, could, they could stay home and work in the basement, and, you know, just, I don't, I don't see the problem, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And here I'm trying to be serious. <laughs> <laughs> trying is the ultimate challenge. Um, I understand. Um, so I understand. Will you get me on the phone? But yeah, you've hit the you've hit the issue right on the head. We're not alone. Uh, same issue affecting Europe. It's affecting Asia. It's affecting China. China has a labor shortage. Um, they have a billion four hundred million people. But, you know, a billion of them are not equipped to be in modern manufacturing or modern much of anything, you know. And so they're, they've got an ample supply of people to do very basic manufacturing work, but that's not the business they're in anymore. Um, they're trying to compete with us and the Germans and the Japanese. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing issue. It affects construction, transportation. It's affecting health care. I mean, there's a shortage of accountants. The only thing we're not short of somehow is lawyers. Um, but, you know, we I don't know what we do. Maybe we start exporting them. Um, but, you know, you know. Uh, I know a few. <laughs> we could export lawyers and politicians and be far better off. I think so. We need to have a you know, like a big important meeting someplace and then cut off their ability to get home. (laughs) (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) Surprise. 
Chris, on another subject that's hitting the news, and Lou and I have been talking about it uh, for some time, and now it's coming to pass, are the new tariffs on China. And there's a couple of things. Mm -hmm. Here's my contention when it comes to China. China doesn't care. They're not paying for it, as the administration says. The American consumer is paying for it. They've got the Belt and Road Initiative and 60-plus other countries around the world that they can export to. They're the second largest GDP, and at the end of the day, uh, 10 years hence, they may not need us at all. Nice to have, but not a necessity. Am I close or far off? Well, there's some truth to that. There is also the fact that China and the U.S. have a kind of mutually hostile and dependent relationship. You know, China really doesn't have an alternative market to the U.S. They sell most of what they make to developed countries like us and the Europeans, and there's no consumer like the American consumer. We will buy anything, um, and we've demonstrated that for decades. So China's economy is definitely slowing. It's at a slower pace than it has been in 20 years. But you're also correct in in that China has has bigger fish to fry. They have different priorities. They're willing to sacrifice for some of those bigger goals, uh, one of which is to be more preeminent in Asia than they are already. So they have the capacity, I think, to outweigh the U.S. You're right in that China does not pay for the tariffs. There is an indirect way that Chinese companies are paying for this because as the tariff is imposed, the company that's being hit has got a choice. They're either going to have to raise their prices to match what the tariff imposition was or they simply swallow the tariff because they don't want to lose market share. Right now, the Chinese companies are, for the most part, swallowing the tariff. They are not raising prices in the U.S. and Europe and elsewhere because they don't want to lose that share. Eventually, they will. And I think this latest round of tariffs is going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back. The Chinese are going to raise the prices um, as little as they can get away with, but they will raise them. And this round is going to hit consumer goods. So the consumer in the U.S. is going to finally see some of that inflation. On the other hand, um, China has taken steps with their revaluing of the currency to counter the tariffs by lowering the value of renminbi. The Chinese are immensely competitive now, just on price. And they're going to be eroding market share for everybody. It's kind of the latest Chinese strategy is kind of a a message to Trump saying, well, you may not be concerned about what we do, but if we make Japan and Korea and Europe and Brazil and everybody else angry at you over what you've made us do, then maybe that will apply some pressure. So we'll have to see. It's going to be a matter of who gets blamed. If the Japanese economy takes a hit, are they going to blame the Chinese for lowering the renminbi, or are they going to blame the U.S. for putting on tariffs that made the Chinese lower the renminbi? <laughs> so it, one it, other, one, it's going to be one other yeah. point. One other point, Chris, is that uh, when the Chinese really get ticked off, 
and they are in a better uh, financial position, and the Belt and Road is uh, moving along, creating a new markets for China. Mm-hmm. And let's not and let's not forget Africa. They're buying Africa. Uh, right. What what happens when China says we no buy bonds anymore? Guess what you owe it. Well, I don't know that they'll be in a position to do that. I mean, a good example of of the limits of Chinese strategy is Africa. Um, you point out that they have been doing their best to buy Africa and and invest in Africa. The challenge is the Chinese are not very good at this. And and if you read almost any of the African press or look at any of the governments, they hate the Chinese. They call them the new colonialists. They said they come here, they take our resources, they only employ Chinese, they don't train us to do anything. They're behaving towards us just the way the French and the British and the Italians and everybody else behaved, and so there's there's been a rejection of China in in a place that they've invested a lot of money. When they build the Belt and Road project, you know it's it's conceivably going to bring them more business, but from where? I mean, most of that is going to be going through wholly undeveloped parts of the world. It's like they're not going to get rich selling to Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan. <laughs> um, they're basically pointing it towards Europe, and the Europeans are like, uh, have you not noticed that we're growing at 0.05? <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, yeah. So you guys yeah, are like flat broke. Didn't look at that. Yeah, and, and so, you know, maybe there's this, this magic moment where you know Boris Johnson of the UK cuts a deal with Xi, and and there's a new a new agreement between you know Britain and, and China, and, <laughs> and it's like who needs Brexit or good for Brexit? We're now going to have you know it. it who knows? <laughs> so it, I, what I find mess. interesting is that Britain, yeah, Britain is trying to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership because they need new trade partners. And their argument is that even though Britain is not in the Pacific, um, they are saying, well, our Commonwealth brothers are there, Australia, (laughs) New Zealand, and Canada. We should be able to join too. And people are like, so are you going to like physically detach from Europe and just float your way over next to Hawaii? Um, (laughs) you You just never know. Uh, is this the uh, the brainchild of uh, Boris? Yeah, it's one of one of many. Um, it's like there's there's something about the politics of 2019 that if you have really bad hair, you're destined to be a leader. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah. I think they may be even twins. Yeah, could be separated at birth. You know, it's like. Yeah, I, I don't want to get political. Chris, yeah, Chris. Um, in terms of headwinds, you know, I, as we look at the U.S. economy, Australia has had almost 30 years of economic growth without, right. you know, significant recession. Well, what are they doing right? What are we doing wrong? And what do our headwinds look like coming up? Well, a part of Australia is different in a couple of significant ways. One is it's a very commodity-driven country, um, and that has forced a kind of fiscal responsibility that most countries have not had. 
they know that their bread and butter is mining and agriculture. And they also know that those markets are notoriously up and down. So when they have a good year, the Australians save money like crazy. The government does not spend it. They salt it away. They put it in rainy day funds. Um, Then when they have a bad year, they've got a resource to draw from. So they kind of even things out. Um, We have right now a debt that's 110% of our GDP. Australia's is 43% of their GDP. I mean, it's actually lower than than the recommended 60%. The other thing that the Australians have done, and I think very efficiently, is that they have focused a lot on kind of training for the future. Um, The educational system in Australia is highly targeted so that there's an idea need people in this area, so let's train people for this. And if you want to major in something else, then maybe you want to leave Australia because we don't have a need for that. Um, so they've been very attuned to to that thing. But even with all of that, they're still highly dependent on two or three industries. And and it frankly helps to be a relatively smaller country with a smaller population. You know, they're not trying to keep 340 million people happy the way we are here. Right, right. Well, wrap it up, <clears throat> wrap it up for us, Chris. Um, uh, and I guess that was pretty much a wrap up. But you got any additional comments to share with our listeners, either on the Fed yeah, I guess, index or the economy as a whole? Yeah, sort of as we have said the last few months, is is this is a period to be cautious. Um, I think now um, most companies have developed contingency plans. They're not expecting a recession, and neither am I, but I am expecting a slowdown. And, and I think now is a good time just to be careful, uh, to be very attentive towards one's current consumer base and pay attention to what's driving them and not be too stretched. I mean, the problem that companies get into is that they get aggressive and and they try to do things that may not be justifiable. Now would be a good time to to listen to the guy in the back of the room who says, "Sir, I don't I don't think we should be that risky." <laughs> so, I guess my <laughs> advice is listen listen to your credit manager. The credit manager is the one that's sitting in the back of the room going, "Excuse me, uh, it's not a sale until we're paid." Um, so, <laughs> that's our John. Tell, yeah, tell <laughs> tell the salespeople just to sit on their hands for a while and and wait till next year. <laughs> yeah, this will be the last show you're on, by the way, Chris. After that last <laughs> comment. <laughs> uh, remember, I, I have a manufacturing plant tucked away, and uh, sales don't sit on their hands. Yeah, exactly. Well, just we'll just tell them not to have too lofty expectations. They can keep trying, right. but you know, just yeah. I'll I'll pass it on. I'll pass it on. Very yeah, good. Right. Chris, thanks for being on Manufacturing Talk Radio with your talents. We always appreciate you. Very good. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you guys next month. Yeah, thanks you for being it. on. Bye. Bye. Bye now. And we've been talking with Dr. Chris Keel, who is the chief economist for the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association International. He also writes the National Association of Credit 
credit managers uh, index report off of the data that uh, NACM.org collects, and we present it here to you. As a matter of fact, it's the only place you're probably going to hear this kind of in-depth information, as Lou has pointed out. You don't hear it on the mainstream media. They're strictly into sound bites, and, and if it leads, if it leads, it leads stories, which uh, is kind of tragic. But we're doing the whole in-depth dive to help you all out. Lou? Well, this show is going to wind up being posted on uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio. It's probably going to be called, you're right, China is not paying the tariffs. And that, that statement was clearly made. And it should be a sock in the eye to all those who believe otherwise. So you're right. China's not paying the tariffs. Jim? Yeah, Chris did point it out. And so we're going to point it out. Uh, don't drink the Kool-Aid. It's not a fact. That's fake news, uh, which you will not hear here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. But thank you for listening to this episode. And we'll be back again soon with more information and more interviews for you to gather Useful information for the manufacturing industry here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at msgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.